0: Section forty four of England since Waterloo by John Arthur Ransom Marriott. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter twenty two Administrative Reform and Foreign Affairs, eighteen sixty eight to eighteen seventy four. Part two. Before Victor Emmanuel had entered Rome, the Second French Empire had ceased to be, and King William I of Prussia had been proclaimed first German Emperor in the Hall of Mears in the Palace of Versailles. The immediate antecedents of these astonishing events demand a brief note. It is France, said Marshal Random, which has been conquered at Sedova. It was true. The rapidity and completeness of the Prussian victories entirely upset the calculations of Napoleon, and his diplomacy between 1866 and 1870 was marked by a series of blunders, each one of which served only to draw him more tightly into the coils prepared for him by Bismarck. The latter prepared grimly for the next step in his carefully premeditated diplomacy so far back as eighteen sixty six he had avowed his conviction that a war with france would succeed the war with austria lay in the logic of history and that such a war was a necessary preliminary to the construction of a united germany napoleon also believed war to be inevitable the empress believed it to be essential to the maintenance of the dynasty and held that if war had to come the sooner the better for France. Napoleon's health was failing, and he knew that the military strength of Prussia was increasing much faster than that of France. Feverishly, he sought alliances with Austria, with Italy, with Russia. The negotiations with Austria had gone far, but the Roman entanglement impeded negotiations with Italy, and when the war cloud burst, France was still without allies by eighteen sixty nine bismarck was ready but he was anxious that the offensive should come from france he found or rather made his opportunity in the Hohenzollern candidature for the throne of spain having got rid of their disreputable queen isabella the spaniards in eighteen sixty nine declared for a constitutional monarchy and bismarck contrived that the throne should be offered to a cadet of the Prussian house, Prince Leopold of hohenzollern Siegmaringen. Prince Leopold hung back, but in 1870 50,000 pounds of Prussian bonds were transferred to Madrid. The offer was renewed and on July 4th was accepted. It was perfectly well known in Berlin that Prince Leopold's acceptance of the crown of Spain would be regarded as a casus belli by Napoleon, and on July fourth, the latter sent a formal intimation to this effect. On July twelfth, Prince Leopold, at his own instance, withdrew his candidature, and Bismarck's diplomatic structure tottered. Once more, war seemed to have been averted. The French Prime Minister M. Olivier declared that the crisis was over, but there were at least two people in France who were not less eager for war than Bismarck himself. France, therefore, with incredible folly, required that the king of Prussia should not merely express his formal approval of Prince Leopold's revocation, but should also promise that he would not again authorize his candidature. This insolent demand was presented to the Prussian king at Ems by Benedetti, the French ambassador, July 13th. The king courteously declined to go beyond his approval of the revocation and as benedetti was importunate sent him word through an aide-de-camp that he had nothing further to say to the ambassador the king telegraphed the news to bismarck at berlin and left it to his minister to decide whether it should be communicated to the diplomatists and to the press bismarck's opportunity had come he took brief counsel with Moltke and Roon and showed them the telegram he had prepared for publication. You have converted, said Moltke, surrender into defiance. He had. But to describe his telegram as forged is an abuse of language. The terms in which he communicated his master's message to the ambassadors and to the press were deliberately designed to inflame passions both in Paris and Berlin his object was attained. The Parisian populace demanded war, and the empress Eugénie and the Duc de Grammont pressed it upon the emperor and a reluctant cabinet. Napoleon was not ready, and he knew it. But on July 14th, the French cabinet, by a majority of one vote, decided on war. The French declaration reached Berlin on July 19th. With consummate adroitness, bismarck had exhibited france in the eyes of europe as a wanton aggressor the rapid sequence of events took the english cabinet completely by surprise the prime minister was absorbed in other matters and the one member of his cabinet who might have intervened with effect to avert war passed away on june twenty seventh lord clarendon was one of the safest if not one of the most brilliant foreign secretaries of the nineteenth century and his death at this critical moment was an irreparable loss both to England and to Europe. His successor, Lord Granville, who received the seals of the Foreign Office on July 6th, on the same day that France publicly declared that she could not permit a foreign state to disturb the balance of power by placing one of her princes on the throne of Charles V. On the previous day, Lord Granville had been informed by Mr., afterwards Lord Hammond, under-secretary at the Foreign Office, that with the exception of the trouble caused by the recent murder of British subjects by brigands in Greece, he had never, during his long experience, known so great a lull in foreign affairs. Within twenty-four hours, Lord Granville was immersed in a desperate effort to keep the peace of Europe. That effort was, of course, abortive. On July 20th, Bavaria decided to join Prussia. The adhesion of South Germany not only added 150,000 men to the forces at the disposal of Prussia, but shut the door in the face of France. Within three weeks, Rune had poured 500,000 troops into France and had another 500,000 ready to start. On August 2nd, the war began. Exactly a month later, September 2nd, napoleon surrendered to the king of prussia at Sedan. the emperor himself and eighty thousand frenchmen became prisoners of war the first phase of the war had ended in a splendid triumph for the german arms the military debacle was immediately followed by a political revolution the empire collapsed a republic was proclaimed september fourth and the empress fled to england a government of national defence was hastily formed under jules favre gambetta and general trochu the governor of paris m favre declared that the republic would not yield a stone of a french fortress nor an inch of french soil this valorous declaration did not facilitate the conclusion of peace the siege of paris began on september twentieth and despite the desperate efforts of gambetta to relieve it the capital surrendered on january twenty eighth eighteen seventy one the germans then granted an armistice to allow the election of a national assembly which met at bordeaux february twelfth and elected the veteran statesman thiers head of state preliminaries of peace were signed in february and finally ratified at Frankfurt on may tenth france was compelled to cede to germany the whole of alsace except belfort and eastern Lorraine, together with the great fortresses of Metz and Strasbourg, and to pay the vast indemnity of five milliards of francs within three years. Until the indemnity was paid, German troops were to remain in occupation of the French fortresses. Lord Granville, as we have seen, had made every effort to avert war. When it was declared, he announced and observed complete neutrality. By both parties, however, his attitude was suspected. English opinion was at first profoundly hostile to France, who was regarded as the wanton disturber of European peace. These feelings were still further inflamed when, on July twenty-fifth, the Times published the text of a draft treaty, which it was alleged had been submitted on behalf of the Emperor Napoleon to Bismarck in 1866. It virtually provided for the absorption of Belgium by France. Bismarck himself communicated the treaty from obvious motives to the Times and followed up the startling disclosure by an elaborate vindication of his own virtue. The French government repudiated Bismarck's account of the matter, and the Emperor himself declared from his camp at Metz that it was Bismarck who offered him Belgium and that he had refused it. Whatever the truth as to the original transaction, it was not easy to justify Bismarck's disclosure, nor the moments selected for it. But the diplomatic controversy that ensued was not without advantage to Great Britain. It rendered both Prussia and France eager to assent to Lord Granville's suggestion that the Treaty of 1839 guaranteeing the integrity of belgium should be renewed and its terms even more rigorous and specific this revised treaty was signed on august ninth and shortly afterwards the terms were extended to include Luxembourg. meanwhile no diplomatic assurances sufficed to convince prussia that the neutrality of england was otherwise than malevolent towards her the english are more hated at this moment than the french in Lord Granville more than Benedetti. Thus the Crown princess wrote from Berlin to the Queen on August 9, 1870. At this moment there was no justification for these sentiments. A month later there was. After the fall of the empire, public opinion in England veered round in favor of the defeated combatant. On September 21st, the queen telephoned to king william to express the hope that he would make peace in a generous spirit lord granville sent a special envoy to the german headquarters to persuade bismarck to meet jules Favre. the king and his chancellor were equally unyielding france was beaten and germany must make herself secure if possible for all time on september thirteenth monsieur Thiers Arrived in London to beg Lord Granville to initiate a movement for European mediation on behalf of France. The English minister received him cordially but sent him away empty. Nothing short of armed intervention proposed to the combatants by all the great neutral powers acting in concert would, as Lord Granville conceived, have been of the least avail. France, however, was convinced that England might have done more. Prussia thought that she ought to have done less. What chance there was of concerted action among the neutrals, the next move in the diplomatic game will show. In October 1870, Prince Gortschakoff addressed to the powers a circular denouncing on behalf of Russia the Black Sea clauses of the Treaty of Paris, 1856. Article 11 of that treaty declared. The Black Sea is neutralized, its waters and its ports thrown open to the mercantile marine of every nation are formally and in perpetuity interdicted to the flag of war, either of the powers possessing its coasts or of any other power. Certain unimportant exceptions were made by Articles 19 and 20, but by Article 13, the Tsar and the Sultan engaged not to establish or maintain upon that coast. Any military maritime arsenal. These were the famous articles which Russia now seized the opportunity, by her sole and individual action, to denounce. The step, if not actually suggested, was certainly approved beforehand by Bismarck. Nor was it really unexpected. Russia had long chafed under the restrictions, and it was reasonably certain that she would take the first chance of escaping from them. Gorchikov cynically referred to the infringements to which most European transactions have been laterally exposed, and in the face of which it would be difficult to maintain that the written law retains the moral validity which it may have possessed at other times. In plain English, the Tsar saw no reason why he should observe treaties when other people broke them. It ought not to escape notice that both for Russia and Great Britain, the question of naval power in the Black Sea had acquired a new significance by the recent 1869 opening of the canal across the Isthmus of Suez. Even yet, perhaps, the world has hardly realized the profound influence that event is destined to exercise upon Weltpolitik. It certainly was not realized in 1870. Virtually, however, there were but two courses open to Great Britain to acquiesce in the bold and cynical action of the Tsar, or without allies, to fight him. To declare war upon Russia at this juncture would be to provoke the Armageddon which England was using all her endeavours to avert. And was the game worth the candle? Lord Derby said that he would fight for the neutrality of Egypt, but not for the neutrality of the Black Sea and he expressed the best opinion on the subject. In face of it, Lord Granville had no option but to get out of a disagreeable business with as little loss of prestige as possible. Bismarck was induced to invite the great powers to a conference to discuss the questions raised by Prince Gorchakov's circular. Great Britain assented on condition that the conference met not at St. Petersburg but in London, and that it should not assume any portion of the treaty to have been abrogated by the discretion of a single power. This may be regarded as solemn farce. The conclusion was foregone, but it was making the best of a bad job. The conference met in London in December, and Lord Granville got all the satisfaction he could out of a solemn protocol, declaring it to be an essential principle of the law of nations that no power can liberate itself from the engagements of a treaty, and unless with the consent of the contracting powers, by means of an amicable arrangement. For the rest, Russia got what she wanted. The modification of the Treaty of Paris was duly recorded in the Treaty of London, March 13, 1871. That English prestige suffered from the tearing up of the Treaty of Paris can hardly be denied, but a still more difficult question awaited solution ever since the american civil war relations between great britain and the united states had been severely strained neither party to the war was satisfied with our attitude the north regarded our neutrality as rather more than malevolent the south thought it inadequately benevolent more specifically there was the question of the damage inflicted upon american commerce by the alabama and other cruisers on this question the attitude of england had undergone some modification lord russell the minister primarily responsible had repudiated all responsibility though he lived to make a manly confession that he had been to blame lord clarendon however in eighteen sixty-nine concluded a convention which virtually admitted that the damage inflicted by the cruisers upon individuals was a matter for negotiation. But of this the American Senate would not hear. They persisted that between the two nations there was outstanding a national question which demanded speedy settlement. More than this, the most extravagant demands were put forward. Great Britain was to be held responsible not merely for provable damage inflicted upon individuals, but for the actual prolongation of the war and the expenses incidental thereto. These indirect claims, as they came to be called, were roughly estimated at 400 million pounds. Mr. Gladstone himself reckoned that four times that sum would have barely covered them. The Americans, doubtless, said a great deal more than they meant. But feelings were exceedingly bitter, and war might very easily have ensued, but for the extraordinary forbearance and restraint of the English cabinet and the English parliament. Early in 1871, the two countries agreed on a joint commission to discuss not only the Alabama claims, but all other questions outstanding between them. The English commissioners were Lord de Grey and Ripon, Sir Stafford Northcote sir john a Macdonald, representing canada sir edward thornton minister at washington and mr montague bernard professor of international law at oxford the commission opened at washington on february twenty seventh and after more than two months of difficult and delicate negotiations the treaty of washington was signed nothing but great forbearance on the part of lord de grey and ripon and his colleagues could have saved the situation they proposed that all the questions not decided in the treaty, which they hoped to conclude, should be submitted to a body of arbitrators. The Americans insisted that the arbitration should itself be governed by certain new principles of international law, which were to be propounded in the treaty. These principles were admittedly not accepted when the Alabama had escaped from Liverpool, and the American demand was therefore illogical. But the Foreign Enlistment Act, passed in England in 1870, had made it a criminal offence to build a ship for use against a friendly belligerent power, and the English commissioners therefore agreed, as a friendly act, that the arbitrator should assume that Her Majesty's government had undertaken to act upon the new principles. The other chief impediment to an agreement was the question of the British counterclaims in regard to the Fenian raids in Canada, but on this point also Great Britain gave way. On May 8, 1871, the Treaty of Washington, a portentous document consisting of 43 articles, was signed. It expressed in a friendly spirit the regret felt by Her Majesty's government for the escape, under whatever circumstances, of the Alabama and other vessels from British ports, and for the depredation committed by those vessels. It adjusted in minute detail outstanding disputes as to the fisheries between United States and Canada, and agreed to refer the question of the Vancouver boundary involving the possession of the island of San Juan to the arbitration of the German emperor, who ultimately decided against Great Britain. It accepted new principles of international law involving greater diligence in preventing the equipment of ships in neutral harbors, for use against friendly belligerents, and finally it agreed to refer the Alabama claims themselves to a tribunal of five persons nominated by Great Britain, the United States, Italy, Switzerland, and Brazil. One difficult corner had thus been deftly turned, another remained. The arbitrators were to meet at Geneva on June 15, 1872. The English arbitrator was Chief Justice Coburn, and Sir Roundell Palmer acted as agent or counsel. At one moment, however, it seemed doubtful whether the Geneva Tribunal would ever meet. Before the end of 1871, the English government learnt that the American case insisted upon an adjudication not only upon the losses suffered by individual American citizens. But upon the indirect, constructive, consequential, and national claims first propounded in their full dimensions by Mr. Sumner. The government were not only disappointed, but deeply incensed at the revival of this preposterous demand, and none more so than Mr. Gladstone, who declared that we must be insane to accede to demands which no nation with a spark of honor or spirit left could submit to, even at the point of death. The cabinet, though, with varying degrees of emphasis, were unanimously against the submission of the indirect claims. The point had really been slurred at Washington. If the Americans had insisted on specific inclusion, or the English on specific exclusion, there would have been no treaty of arbitration. The moderate men on both sides hoped that they would be ruled out by the arbitrators themselves, and this was precisely what happened at Geneva that it did happen was due to the high courage, the true dignity, and perfect tact of one man whose name should be had in everlasting remembrance, Charles Francis Adams, the American nominee. Thanks to Adams, the tribunal met, and in September 1872 it issued its award. It was unanimously against Great Britain as regards the Alabama and by a majority on other claims. The sum awarded for damages in final settlement was about three million two hundred and fifty thousand pounds. It was a good deal cheaper than war, was the characteristic comment of Mr. Lowe. Eight years afterward, Mr. Gladstone said, Although I may think the sentence was harsh in its extent and unjust in its basis, I regard the fine imposed on this country as dust in the balance, compared with the moral value of the examples set when these two great nations, of England and America, went in peace and concord before a judicial tribunal, rather than resort to the arbitrament of the sword. It was finally said, and impartial history may applaud the sentiment, but among contemporaries there was an uneasy sense that too many of the kicks had of late fallen to our share. As for the government— the Geneva Award added another item to its rapidly accumulating burden of unpopularity. The appointment of Sir Robert Collier to be a paid member of the Judicial Committee of the Privy Council, though in itself unexceptionable, was a flagrant violation of the spirit of the recent act. The act provided that the paid member should have served on the bench. Sir Robert never had, but was appointed for a few days a Justice of the Court of Common Pleas to give him the technical qualification. This was sailing too near the wind, and the government escaped actual censure in the Lords by only two votes, and the Commons by only twenty-seven. The appointment of a Cambridge graduate to the Rectory of Ulm seemed to be another, though less important, violation of law. When the Rectory had been divorced from the Regius Professorship of Divinity, it was provided that the rector should be a member of the convocation of oxford such things relatively unimportant in themselves were not calculated to prop up a tottering ministry but the final blow came perversely from an irish measure defeated on his irish university bill by a majority of three mr gladstone immediately placed his resignation in the hands of the queen march thirteenth eighteen seventy three the Queen sent for Disraeli, but Disraeli had no desire for another term of office without power, nor did he wish to check the coming conservative revival by a premature and purposeless dissolution. The pair, he judged in a party sense, was nearly but not quite ripe. He judged wisely. Mr. Gladstone resumed office with a very bad grace, March 20th. A shifting of cabinet offices did nothing to redeem the popularity of the ministry, and the credit for the success of a little war accrued justly enough to the soldiers. A deal with the Dutch had lately transferred to Great Britain some forts on the African Gold Coast. In June of 1873, the native Ashantis, disliking the change, attacked the Protectorate in force. Sir Garnet Wolseley was sent out in command of a punitive expedition, penetrated through the unhealthy jungle to Kumasi, the Ashanti capital, burnt the palace and town, imposed terms on King Coffee Kalkali, and returned triumphant. The whole expedition was planned with the forethought and executed with the punctuality and success which the world has long since associated with the name of its commander before he and his troops returned to england march eighteen seventy four the government which had sent them out had fallen in january eighteen seventy four mr gladstone had informed the queen that the cabinet had resolved to advise an immediate dissolution as the best means of putting an end to the disadvantage and weakness of a false position the position was possibly false it was certainly weak and its weakness was due to many causes in combination. To an overloading and still more an overweighting of the parliamentary ship, to several legislative failures, to one administrative scandal, and more than one equivocal use of patronage, to cabinet divisions which not even the high authority of the Premier could wholly check, to a sense of lowered prestige abroad and weakened vitality at home to a remarkable series of governmental defeats and by-elections, above all to the political anticlimax which had ensued on the defeat of the ministry in March 1873. On top of all this, Gladstone had made up his mind to the greatest financial plunge of his career at the Exchequer, the abolition of the income tax. This was no deathbed repentance or Hustings' inspiration but for the crimean war he might have done it nearly twenty years before if he could obtain the assistance of cardwell and goshen now at the head of the two great spending departments he believed himself to be at last in a position to accomplish it their help was doubtful but the premier clearly hoped much from an appeal to the country we dissolve he wrote on finance his programme as put before the country was threefold number one repeal of the income tax, number two, relief and readjustment of local taxation, number three, remission of taxes on articles of general consumption. It was not for nothing that Mr. Gladstone had gone back to the exchequer. The constituencies, however, refused the bait from Mr. Gladstone, and they never got another chance of swallowing it. In England, the Tories swept the country. Even in Scotland and Wales, there was some weakening of the Liberal defences. The home rulers came fifty-eight strong from Ireland. In the event, the Tories had a clear majority of over fifty in the House of Commons, reckoning all the home rulers as opponents. Mr. Gladstone attributed his defeat, neither generously nor accurately, to a torrent of gin and beer, and to the coil of the education controversy. His colleagues preferred not to await the verdict of Parliament, and against his own judgment he gave way. On his resignation, the Queen sent for Mr. Disraeli. End of section 44.